0: Good evening. Good to see each one of you this this evening. As we gather to worship, I invite you to stand. And let's gaze into the face of Jesus this evening, because He is the fairest of 10,000. chapter 11 says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely examining every person on earth. So the Lord reigns this evening and no matter what we see going on, no matter what's going on in our life, he reigns supreme and he created us and he loves us. And so I invite you to joyfully worship him as the one that reigns supreme. King of Kings.
1: worship. You deserve it, Lord. You deserve our worship, Jesus. Love and adoration.
0: You
1: deserve it, King
0: God, we just run out of words. Even though we sing many of these songs week in and week out, sometimes we just have to throw up our hands and just praise Him and sing hallelujah to Him and give Him all the honor that's due His name.
1: All my words fall short. Thank okay. you.
0: nothing else that we can sing. is nothing but hallelujah. You know, we know you are being honored and glorified and praised, given to the only one that's due all of our things. So as we pour our heart out to you this evening, God, we thank you for receiving our purpose. our ear to your want to be taught by
2: you. Well, if you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll just be covering this chapter tonight. If you're watching online, we want to encourage you to get plugged in and and we got a lot going on. Tom's going to have quite a few announcements here at the end. Uh one of the reminders that I do want to remind you of is the the time to get signed up for our uh, Seven Churches of Revelation trip is, is drawing close. They didn't give us a, a deadline for getting in, but we have talked with them, and um, we want to be able to get those tickets and get all the things lined up. So if you're thinking about doing that tour, definitely, we've been sending out email notices and stuff, you want to get signed up for that. Tonight we're going to be picking up, and Paul having a continuing conversation about Um, what we would determine as end of life, but it really is an end of life. When we think about end of life, we think about end of life of this earth, right? But God's got a totally different perspective because the end of life on this earth really is the beginning of real life. It is the joy that's there. But looking at that sometimes can be a bit scary. It's, It's like going to a place that you've never been before and trying to figure that out. Paul, in writing to... The Church of Corinth here is answering a lot of questions, and, and one of the big questions that they had then, and, and people have now, is, for a Christian, what happens when I die? And how does that all work out? And, and he gives some answers that way, but then he also gives some clarification on his ministry, as he'll see here in the end of this chapter, and and moving on into the next. Because some of the people in, in Corinth were discrediting his ministry. They weren't validating him Really, as an apostle anymore. They were kind of moving on. They were listening to some false teachers and those things that were going on. One of the things though that that is true in Paul's day, it's true in our day, is the gift of grace that God's given to us. God has graced us with the gift of life and that much more, hasn't he? We think about this life and, and all Christians experience this gift of grace at the moment of salvation. You know eternal life begins. When you accept Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, that's when eternal life begins. The reality is our bodies haven't caught up to where our spirits are already are. It's kind of like that already, not yet. You are gone on a trip with kids? Are we there yet? No, you're not yet. You know, the, the smart parents will drive at night. Why? Because the kids go to sleep. Right? You don't, You know, and then they invented this thing, you know, iPads and all the other things that keep them busy, but we think about this. And as a Christian, so many times we we live in the, am I there yet? I want to get there. Why? Because this tent and this dwelling place is starting to fall apart. Think about modern science today. Years ago, they had this TV show called The Bionic Man. And they used to think it was such a great thing, you know, he got a new eye, new limbs, and... You know, then they had the bionic woman, and I even think they made like bionic kids or something along the way, I don't know. And, and they were changing parts. But now do you realize how many parts are changed on people? I know a guy in this church has got more fake parts than real parts. We look at this and his knees and shoulders and, and 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 elbows and teeth and all the different things that are going on. There comes a time when the parts don't need to be changed anymore. Why? Because God gives you that new body. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight here because it provides a hope. There is a hope that all Christ followers have that the world doesn't understand. It's a hope that brings comfort. Because whether you like it or not, you're in a process of mortification. Fancy word. Mortification meaning things are being put to death. Things are dying within that. And the hope is that we will move beyond mortification into this eternal life. And there's this dying flesh that we're surrounded in. And not just the dying flesh of the body, but the flesh of this body that tempts us to sin. That wants what it wants when it wants it. And how do we how do we navigate that? And there is a guarantee that we have that we're going to learn about tonight. There's something that God has given to us that gives us the assurance that we are in process of mortifying or seeing this flesh put to death and putting to death this flesh. And when that time comes for the end of life, having that sensibility and that sense of living, moving out of an obsolete building. So we're going to jump right into chapter 5, verse 1. Is He's continuing on this conversation that we started last week about that which is perishing and putting on the new and such. And really, a lot of people... Uh, Think that God's doing a renovation project. I can tell you this, when God gets to heaven, He's not using any of the old parts. It's all brand new. It's a tear down and build up. Praise God for that. Well, Let's take a look at verses uh, 1 through 10. And He says this in chapter 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we will have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have been having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the the Spirit as a pledge, and therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, and I say and prefer rather to be absent from this body and to be present at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we'll pause there. As Paul is kind of finishing this out, as I said to the church of Corinth, he's talking about this resurrected hope that, that is guaranteed that we have as a Christ follower. We don't have to wish we are going to have eternal life. We are guaranteed We have that eternal life through Jesus. It really is the core principle of the gospel message. The gospel meaning good news. What's the good news? You're not going to eternally die and be separate from God forever. The good news is you're going to have eternal life. What does man fear the most? Death. Death is a terrible, terrible thing. And many people fear it unless you're a believer. I've been around a lot of people, as, as I've shared before, that... That died, that they have shed this body, and I've watched them, and there's a marked difference between a believer dying and an unbeliever dying. When I was in the hospital last week with Mary Jo, and she was passing, there was just a sweet presence of the Spirit, unlabored, just relaxed, and just slipped off into be in the hands of the Lord. Within that. And you think about this confidence that we have. It is a hope that carries us forward. Why? Because according to the gospel message, this hope is guaranteed because you've been reconciled to God. And Paul's going to unpack that reconciliation and what that looks like here in a minute. But he starts out in verse 1. He says, For we know that if the early tent, which is our house, is torn down. Now, we know if. It's a reference to everything that he previously taught about this body dying. And he's reminding the church of the foundational truth. There is, the foundational truth is that life is temporal and Jesus promised eternal. Eternal what? Eternal life. In what? In an eternal body. You are not going to be some floating little orb of light floating around in the sky somewhere. You're not Tinkerbell or any of these other things. You don't become an angel. You will get a new body. Guaranteed. But it's not going to be a body made with hands. God has based this promise on the resurrection. In fact, everybody is going to be resurrected. Some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. But there is a resurrection. In the church, we talk an awful lot about the eternal life. We don't talk an awful lot about eternal damnation. But there is a resurrection of the dead to judgment and to eternal damnation. That that they are given that body for that time, God will raise the dead, and Paul's already talked about it in First and Second Corinthians one nineteen or one nine, and 2 Corinthians four fourteen. You can read about it, but there's this little word in there, if, and that word that is in there is is this potential, and it's third class. He says now, if the earthly tent, which means you look at that and you say, Well, what does it mean? I thought everybody dies, if this earthly tent. Ah. Paul in the first sentence gives us little nugget of hope. If this you shed this earthly tent because of death, but not everybody will. Why? Because Paul was still holding on and still holds on to the second coming of Christ, the Perusa, whereas that not everybody will die. He talks about that in First Thessalonians four. At the rapture of the church, not all will die, not all will sleep. And he said it in the previous chapter, but all will be changed. Do you realize that at any moment right now Jesus could come back and you wouldn't have to die, but you'd just be transformed? I'm voting for that. I don't want I don't want the journey you know, I would rather go, you know, do not pass go. Just just send me up, be me up, take me up. I'm good to go. But if the Lord would tarry and I have to enter through this this process of shedding this tent, and that's what he means by this potential, if you have to shed this tent. But not everybody will have to, because he holds to this truth that, that there is a potential of transformation in the second coming. But if this tent is torn down, you think about that idea of tent. Paul lived in a Near Eastern culture, and there was a group of nomadics that would move from pasture land to pasture land, right? Bedouins. When we go to Israel, when we go over there, we see them. It's amazing <laughs> going up to Jerusalem, you see these guys and they're Bedouins and they're and, and they're driving their Mercedes and they have a satellite dish outside of their tent. <laughs> and they pack it up and they go to different places. Why? Because they're living in tents. It's not a permanent home. But he says in this if this early tent is torn down, the thing is about a tent is that it always has to be repaired, doesn't it? Not really a permanent structure. Now, what does that tell us about these bodies when Paul uses this idea of tent? Because he contrasts tent versus house. House is meant to be permanent. Tent is meant to be temporary, transitory, right? So, if he says, if we are shedding this tent, that means that this body is not your permanent home. Can I get an amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? And, and so with that, there is this condition, and that is the first step of hope. The first step of hope is that God's given me hope to get out of here. This, this contrast of temporal versus eternal. The contrast between human-made and divinely designed. You Think about that. When he's talking about the place of worship, the temple itself, the house of worship... Who made it? Was it God that made it or God designed it and man made it? God designed it, man made it, right? And we know the temple got torn down. But the house of worship, the eternal house of worship, this body, is going to be something that's going to be eternal. The other thing that he says, that he talks about this in verse 1, this transitory event that life is a pilgrimage. We're in a journey. Not only do we live in a tent... But this earth is not our home. Don't get attached to it. Don't get overly attached to it. Why? It's all going to burn. It's going to go away. We can try to save the trees, but I can tell you in the end, they're going to be torches. They're gone. We can try to save the animals, but I can tell you what, they're all going to be gone. And the rocks and all the different things. Why? Because it's all contaminated by sin. It's all going to go away. This earth is not our home. We don't want to save the earth. We want to see people saved. It's the soul that is eternal. Not this earth. We need to expend our energy in sharing the gospel. And not necessarily saving the planet. Although we should be good stewards, we should realize that this is not our home. We are going to shed this place, this this tent, this dwelling. And we're going to have a house, as, as Paul says, not made with hands. Where? Eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. So for us, this is not our home. And our future home is eternal in the heavens. Now think about that. If the believer's home is eternal and in the heavens, where is the final resting place for the unbeliever? Well, Jesus tells us, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15 says this. And this is in the end, John's vision. At the final judgment, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Yep, I told you, all goes away. No place was found for them, and I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. Why? Because there was a resurrection of the dead. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged were the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades were the abodes of the dead, the holding place for those that died apart from God, outside of, outside of life. They gave up their dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. That's final judgment. Heaven is the place where God dwells. But but when we talk about the sky and the earth and the stars and all of that, that all goes away. The amazing thing about Revelation 20 is this. In the end, the only thing that's present before the throne of God are the living and the dead who are all judged. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life they enter into the presence of God. But those names that aren't, the book of their works are all laid out. Let's see how you did. Is there any righteousness in you? Is there any sin? How many sins does it take to enter into eternal damnation? One. One. Apart from perfection, you're going in. The amazing thing is, Multiple times in Scripture, God says you will be, even believers, you will be held accountable for everything you do and every careless word you say. Now, the judgment for the believers is a bit different than than for the unbelievers. For believers, it's a reward or or, or punishment. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, the resurrection hope that Paul wants us to understand is this, is that there is an eternal hope that's founded in the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Paying the penalty for your sin. And he'll unpack it in a minute. Death is 100% for sure. The second death is determined on whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book in life. And the only way it gets there is if you put your trust and faith in Jesus. And your, your name is there. It's not a matter of if you die. It's a matter of when you die. This body will have to go away because as we read last week, this body is contaminated with sin. It's a dying flesh and it cannot inherit eternal things. It can't go into heaven. So the question is, what exactly happens when we die? How does Paul have this confidence and this believer's confidence? What happens? Well, I can tell you this. You want to know what happens after you die? Just take a look at Jesus. Seriously, when you take a look at Jesus, what did he do? He died. And he was what? Buried. And he what? Rose again. In a spirit or in a full fledged body. Full fledged body. But wasn't bound by the things of the earth any longer. He could walk through walls, he could appear, yet he could still eat and all of the different things. He could be touched, he could be held. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and the first fruit of the resurrected body. So many people get all wound up about it. Just look at Jesus. He's the example and the model that's with it. And it's where we see that he is spiritual, imperishable, incorruptible, and eternal. You want to know what kind of body you're going to have? It's going to be spiritual. It's not going to be bound by dimensions of this earth or the, or the things of this earth. Imperishable, Eternal. Immortal, it's going to be living. The other thing that I think is interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of camping on, on one a little bit because we need to understand a couple of things. The phrase, we have, we have a building from God. That's present tense. It's not we will have. We have right now. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Do you realize that it's already been preset, it's already set for your dwelling place, that new body, it's already ready to go? It's not like you're going to get there and you're going to be on a waiting list because there's a material shortage. (laughs) It's not like suddenly you get in a car accident and Jesus goes, oh, I didn't see that one coming. It's ready to go. We have a building. So when you move out of your tent, guess what you get to move right into? The permanent dwelling place. Which is awesome when you think about that. It's an already, not yet. God had already established it. Paul says, that you receive your new body, your new dwelling place the moment you leave this tent. The moment you you pass this physical death, you have this house. He says, now, now the difficulty is, we want that. If we know that, we want that. If you know there's an upgrade waiting for you, you want it. He says, now we're groaning, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Which means we want to shed this, this earth, this groaning, this longing. And notice what else he says: we're, we're groaning and longing for this dwelling from heaven. Verse three: Inasmuch we have put it on, like you would clothing, you put off the dead and put on. We will not be found naked. How else do I know that I'm going to get my new body when I die? Because he says, when we get there, we get the new body, or we get the new dwelling place. It's already done. It's already ready to go. You put it on because you've shed the other one so that we won't be found naked or exposed. Now, there's a lot of people that have a lot of different theology and all these different things. And I just go with what the Bible says. And the Bible says that uh, there is no intermediary position. There is no naked spirit floating around waiting for the body to be done or to move in. Nor are you waiting for um, this, this rapture within that it is it is just like Jesus who got his body right away Paul says we get our body right away within that and we put off the old flesh and we put on the new just like in the grave you're dumping the grave clothes and you're putting on that new man now that should give you good confidence what's the good confidence number one God's got a plan like it Number two, he's ready for you when you get there. And number three, there's no hesitation. I've got something to look forward to. Now, the challenge comes, again, in when people compare 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And it seems like Paul would be saying that, well, no, you really don't get your body until then. And I've, I, I read all kinds of arguments and I studied them and... People say, well, you know, Paul, Paul didn't mature in his understanding of the word. And it wasn't until Thessalonians he really got it mature. No, he was talking about two different situations. And it was contextual to the people that he was writing to because the Thessalonians thought the rapture came and they missed it. And so 1 Thessalonians 4 is a timing question about the difference between those that had fallen asleep and had already died versus those that would be raptured. And he's saying that those that have already died, have already gotten their body. You're not going to get your body before they get their body. And then those that are alive will get their new body when the Lord comes within this. He didn't change his position. He's just dealing with the question of the Corinthians that they had asked. And, and before you get all wrapped up, and I've heard Christians debate foolishly well, you know, you're going to get your body here, you're going to get your body there, you're going to get your body there, you're going to get your body there. I can tell you this, who cares? Because it all comes down to one, one answer. The eternal hope is God's in control, I'll get it when I get it, and I don't throw a fit. Because He's got the plan. And, and, and so I just got to understand that if I take a look at Scripture contextually, and systematically, it points to the fact that when I die, I get my new body and I'm absent from the body to be present with the Lord. It's a huge thing. He confirms this in Philippians three twenty to 21 He says, look it. Our citizenship is in heaven right now, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of His glory, His resurrected body. And by the exertion of the power that He has to get even subject to all things in Himself. The other part is this. He does all the work. I don't have to do anything. So when we groan to be clothed within this, what are we groaning for? What are we looking for? Well, the other side is that we have to go through hardship. Why do we groan? Because we're suffering. And there is going to be suffering in this world. And there's going to be suffering in this life. And there's going to be suffering in the journey of death. And we groan for that within this. And life is going to be full of hardship as we are waiting. Keep in mind, it's an already, not yet. And I'm in the not yet. But I'm trying to get to the already. Am I there yet? No, you're not there yet. Uh. There's the groaning. He goes on, and he says this, and now who has prepared for us for this purpose? As I said earlier, it's God who does this transformational work. And I can tell you this, from the point of salvation, when you accepted Christ, you've been in a transformational work. God's been changing the inside. He's been changing the part that goes into eternity. He's not changing the outside. Why? It's going to go away. But the inside is the part that is changing and you should be growing. And you should be being conformed to the image of Christ within this. And how do we know that he's doing that work? Ah, he told us. You know this because the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You see, the Holy Spirit is the general contractor. And He's working on the inside. And He's working for the Lord. And He has given us this, this power unto salvation via the Holy Spirit. As verse 5 says, a pledge, a down payment. How do I know that I have a new house? Because the Holy Spirit is inside you right now, preparing you for that new dwelling place. You should experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you are not, if you are not, you really need to check yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. Because it is a guarantee, it's a pledge, it's a down payment, it's a for sure thing that you know. That God is real and that God is working in your life. Therefore, as he says in verse 7, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. Sight. Now, what's the difference between the New Testament church and the Old Testament Israel? Old Testament Israel, when they were going through the wilderness experience, how did they know where to go? There were two things. What were they? Fire and cloud, right? They followed by sight. And it's pretty safe to say that they didn't follow by faith, right? They blew it a lot. But they follow, and when the pillar would get up and go, then they would go, and it would stay, it would stay, right? That's walking by sight, not by faith, and we saw how that ended up. But the New Testament church, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, and we walk by faith, not by sight, which causes us to look where? Internally. Internally. Not on the external, but on the internal. We're still in this body. We're still absent from the Lord. But it's by faith that we're always looking for the leading of the Lord. And we are always looking one day to leave this thing behind. But till we do, we're on a path and a journey. Do you realize that God has already laid out for you your journey? And everyone is different. Which is an amazing thing to me. Not only is everybody's journey different, but the same Spirit of God is guiding everybody differently in their journey and working all at the same time to guide you in the, It blows my mind to think about that. I can't hardly get through one day without help. You think about how, how God is working. And so by faith, we're always looking internally... With this confident hope. It's the assurance of hope that God has got me on a path that's leading me unto glorification. Unto being changed into the image of God. Unto getting off this rock. And being with Him. But till then, He's changing me and He's doing the heart work. But it's hard work. And God's revealing that inner inner man and and not really working on the outside. Why? Because as as He says, we're going to We're going to shed it. Now, Paul shares his heart here in verse 8. He says, we, inclusive we, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Something else this is interesting about. Have you ever heard a teaching called soul sleep? The concept of soul sleep people would teach is when you die, you just go to sleep for a while. Into this like ambiguous state, you're just kind of there. And then at one time, God's going to call everybody and say, wake up, now it's time to go. No. Paul says to be absent from this body, this body of flesh is to be where? Present with the Lord. When? When? That fast. As, as he said earlier in the last chapter, in the twinkling of an eye. There is no such thing as soul sleep. None. You leave this body, you're with the Lord. And I, one of the things, and again, it's just, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit weird. But I always wonder, as I'm watching people pass, I always wonder at what point, because when you're dying, they say the hearing is the last thing that goes. So I'm always wondering what is being heard in that moment? And what is being seen in that moment? And in the conscious, how that trans and and and, and to make that transition in that twinkling of an eye to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord in that instantaneous moment and then that that first impression of heaven can you imagine what that would be like not a clue and you know Paul he saw it and said I try to explain it but it would be a sin for me to try to do it you think about Lazarus you know he went to Abraham's bosom right that was that wasn't even heaven but for the believer that 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 goes and goes to be with the Lord? You think about that. And then I think about the unbeliever. And what that is like. And the terror that happens in the passing. And you can see it. The body tenses up. There's groaning and there's convulsing and such things. I say, oh, it's just death. no. And to enter into this place of outer darkness, isolation, suffering. Heaven is real and so is hell. As believers, we have a resurrection hope unto heaven. But it should terrify us to have loved ones enter into that place of hell. Which should move us even that much more to share in the gospel. Knowing what we know. To be absent from the body for the believer is present with the Lord. And that's comforting. You say, well that's good. What happens when we get there? Well, he says, we will all appear for a judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may recompense for his deeds, for his body, according to which he's done, whether good or bad. You say, well, wait a minute, Carrie. I thought, I thought Jesus paid the price for all my sin. Yeah, he did. Well, if, if all my sin is paid for, then why do I have to stand in judgment? Well, there is a bemacy judgment or the judgment of rewards. For the church of Corinth, they would know this term. The Bema seat judgment was the judicial seat by which all of the, the uh, laws, the judgments, the um, proclamations were all made. It was called the Bema seat. It was a bench. In Corinth, it's in the lower section of the Agora or the marketplace. And so you, the, the judge, or the they would go and they would sit there and they would make these proclamations from this seat. If you were before this judgment seat, it was there. Often it could be a place of reward. Or it could be a place of judgment that's there. <clears throat> I think it's important to understand that the one that sits on the Bema seat is only one. It is not the Supreme Court of a collaboration of people that have an idea that we all collaborate and we come together and we think this guy is. No. And it's not the court of public opinion, it's the court of one. Paul says it's the Bema seat of who? Christ. What's happening there? We're giving an account. There is no hiding. Each one has to be accountable for his actions and his commitments. For the purpose of reward. For a purpose of testing. We read about it when we went through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 says this. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is in Christ. Jesus. now if any man builds a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Any man's work... Is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though through fire. That's the bema seat judgment. So Paul says, I lay a foundation. Somebody else comes and they do a ministry work. Somebody else comes in ministry work. And we all participate in this life. And some of them, precious stones, gold, silver, precious stones, others, wood, hay, or stubble, worthless stuff. Your life is being tested by fire before the Lord. And anything that was worthless, you suffer loss. Gone. You can say, you know, I, I spent 45 years teaching Sunday school. But if you did it with the wrong heart, nothing. I spent 45 years in the nursery. Tested. Gold. Silver. Jewels. They're your rewards great. Now what do I do with it? I'm in heaven. What do I need gold for? It's pavement. You're rewarded. You're rewarded the victor's crown. Then you turn over to Revelation chapter 5 and you see the worship at the throne where the crowns of the multitudes are being cast back. You're rewarded and then you turn around and in worship and praise you give your rewards back to the Lord. I often think what it would be like to show up at that worship session and go, I got nothing. See, we are going to be held accountable. Why did Paul share this with the church of Corinth, this beam of seat judgment? If you remember, what was the big problem that the church of Corinth had? They thought that they could live like hell. They thought, once I'm saved, once I'm forgiven, nothing else matters. They thought, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, indelible ink. It can't be erased, so what I do from this point on doesn't matter, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. You are held accountable for your actions as a Christ follower. Yes, you're forgiven, and as Paul would say, you're saved as though by fire. That's a powerful, powerful sentiment that he says here. Because he's writing to Christians in Corinth. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one would be recompensed or paid for his deeds, body, whether they're good or bad within that. What you do in this body has eternal significance. Know that what you do now is being recorded. That's a scary thing, isn't it? How you treat your spouse at home, your employer at work, your kids, all of those things is all being recorded. Do you imagine sitting at that, that place and Jesus sitting on the beam of seat and says, Gabriel, roll the tape. Oh, scary. We are saved by faith alone. Understand that. We are not saved by works. Paul was challenging them because of reckless living. The church should not live recklessly. Or like the world. As I said, we're saved by faith alone. But saving faith is revealed through obedient service. You're saved by faith alone, not by works. But that real faith is going to be revealed in how you live. There should be a marked difference. Paul goes on. And he changes topic a little bit here. And, and he says, now here's how I want to encourage you, church. And and now that you understand, this is what happens when you die. And this is the eternal hope, the resurrection hope that you got going for you. This is the thing that now you got to understand, you need to share it with other people. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord which he just talked about, right? Knowing the fear of the Lord, which I just said, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. We are not again commending ourselves to you or giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. You can underline that. For the love of Christ controls us. We'll come back to that. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though We have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he had committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Having this confidence of this eternal hope, this resurrection hope, we know that... We got it. In essence, what Paul is saying is, I know my salvation. I know my future hope. I know where that's going to go. Knowing that, how should I respond? I should be telling others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, I should be confronting other people. Within this. Since we know... Persuade men. Since we know the power of the gospel... Persuade men. People. Tell them. The church should no longer be silent. You shouldn't sit fat and sassy on your salvation, trying to glide on into heaven. Knowing what you know, you're calling is to provide a ministry of reconciliation for those who don't know yet. The Corinthian church had become fat and sassy. My name's written in the book of life. I'm not going to stand in judgment. I'm a little worried about what's going to happen when I die, but, you know, I can deal with that. Paul explained it all to him, and he says, don't be so sure. But if you're truly reconciled, seek to... Have others reconciled to God. And, and so he goes, since we know this, this is the motivation. Paul knows here in, in verse 11 that he's accountable. He's accountable to God. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing his calling, he's accountable. And knowing that he's going to be judged. Paul just said in verse 10, I'm going to stand before the bema seat of God. Jesus, wait a minute. I'm going to stand before the behemoth seat of Jesus. The same Jesus that knocked me off my horse and said, go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. The same Jesus that said, go, I want to use you in a mighty way. I'm going to stand in front of him with this holy unction and calling. I am fully persuaded, knowing this, knowing the fear of the Lord, I need to operate in my giftedness and in my calling within this. Knowing that I'm going to be held accountable. Therefore, I should seek to persuade other people. And so what Paul does is he says, look it, I shouldn't have to again, verse 12, commend myself to you, but I will. And it's not that I'm trying to be proud that God called me to you. That's not what it's about, but I need you to understand I am motivated for you to be saved because I'm going to be held accountable if you're not. I need to open my mouth. Can you imagine sitting before God in the bema of seat judgment? Before Jesus and he says, look it, I gave you this opportunity and this opportunity and this opportunity and this opportunity and, this opportunity and you kept your mouth shut every single time. Tell me, Carrie. Why did you stay silent here when I gave you that opportunity? Well, I was there. Poof. There doesn't cut it. Wood. Well, I gave him a track. Poof. Stubble. We're going to be held accountable. And Paul then says, look it, you may think I'm out of my mind. Notice in verse 13. He says, for with if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Modern day translation, if you think I'm nuts, I'm a Jesus freak. That's okay. Because it's for you. It's for you. People are going to, if you're going to be a Christian, people are going to think you're weird. Why? Because you're not of this world. You're an alien. And that's okay. You know, Paul was pretty zealous. This is a guy that was beaten and stoned and whipped and thrown out and all these other things. And he kept coming back for more and they thought, you're a crazy man. But why was he so crazy? He says it. The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me. Paul understood the love of Christ personally. It had gotten control of him. So much so, it was compelling him to go. To share. He was compelled by love. What love? The sacrificial love. If you meditate... And this is, this is something I would encourage you to do. Think about how much God loves you. Take it beyond the little Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Go deep into it. Consider what a wretch you are, or what a wretch you were, what a saint you are, and how that transitioned you into that place. It's for the sake of love that you go out. Because God loved me so much, i got to share that love with somebody else. That same God love. It, it's that love of God, as Paul would say, it compels me. It's transformational. In John 15, 13 to 17, it says, Greater love is no one than this, than the one who lays down his life for who? His friends. And you are my friends. If you do what I command you to do, no longer do I call you slaves, for slaves doesn't know what his master doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, and appointed you that you go bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. This command I give you, that you love one another. Do you know sharing the gospel with somebody is the most loving thing you could ever do? That's the most loving thing you could ever do. Why? Because you're helping them enter into eternity. In an eternal life. I often hear people say some things, and more recently in some very uh, uh, popular people, they'll say phrases, Oh, for the love of God. For Christ's sake. And then they give whatever... Thing that they say. For the love of God, you should do this. For Christ's sake, you should do this. And I often think, you know, why would you blaspheme something so sacred and so holy? Do you really know the love of God? Are you really acting for the sake of Christ? Or are you just using it as a derogatory term? Paul states, it's for the love of Christ that controls us. The word is suneko. It means literally to restrain. It is God's love that is controlling and leading you to do things. And it changes us. So what has love done? Well, let's start with you. What has love done for you? Paul says it. Love has reconciled you to God. Love brought you to God. You would not have come to God on your own. Would you? No. But God loved you that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died on the cross for you. It was for the love of God that he reconciled you to himself. And this reconciliation is there and he explains what it is. It was for the love of Christ that Christ died a proxy death for you. You know what proxy means? To stand in your place. Substitute. Jesus died a proxy death for you. But there's more to it than that. Not only did Jesus die a proxy death for you. But he rose again in a proxy resurrection for you. Jesus could have just died on the cross. Paid the penalty for your sins. But if he had not risen again physically. There would be no hope of resurrection. And he conquered the grave within that. Which means everyone that is in Christ has already died for their sins because Christ died for those sins. And Jesus rose again, which means you are already resurrected in Christ. Isn't already not yet that you're in that place. Now, here's the mind blowing thing. Jesus died a proxy death for every soul. And proxy resurrection for every soul. But not every soul will be saved. Will they? No. The potential is there. But do not hear me teaching universalism. It is not everyone is saved. Only those that believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that accept the forgiveness of sins that have put their faith and trust in that proxy death and that proxy resurrection. Only those that put their faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior will be saved. And there will be many that reject that within this. Because the proxy death means that I have to die to self I have to die to sin. I have to die to my flesh. I have to die to my old nature. And then I am resurrected. By the love of Christ. Paul states that if anyone is in Christ. And that's a true statement. First class condition. If anyone is in Christ. They are a new creation. Already. Right now. Within this. It's a condition that is true. Why? If I am in Christ, I'm already a new creation. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's not if anyone is in Christ, I will be a new creation. You are right now. If that's the case, then act like it. Live it. Live in that resurrection. Live in that power. That means that the old ways are gone. That the old thinking is gone. That pre-Christian life is in the grave, dead and buried. What would it be like if every Christian would recognize that their old man and their old nature is dead and buried? But you know what we do? We have this weird, weird, weird way of living. We go back to the grave where that old man was buried. We dig it up. And we get up that stinky, dead, old body. And we strap it on our shoulders of this new man. And we carry it around. Because that's what we do when we go back to that old way of life. I am a new creation. But I add to myself this old stinky death. You ever wonder why a true Christian can never really go back to the world and be satisfied? Because he's a new creation. It can't happen. I had a friend tell me that one time. He was in his backslidden state. We were having a conversation. And he says, Kerry, I don't know what to do. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I'm not happy. And I said, well, come back to the Lord. Well, I don't know why I would do that either. I said, well, then you're really messed up, aren't you? He goes, I am. He says, I can't go back and be happy. because I know too much about God. And, and I can't go to be with God because I like this, this old stuff that I was doing too much. I'm really stuck. I'm unhappy. You buddy, you better figure it out. But you need to cast off that old man and that old nature. Paul in Romans 6.11 says, Even so consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. The problem is you in your head. And quit going back to the old world. The past has to be dead. Just as it. it, Here's a picture. I want you to think about this. Your past has to be as dead as Jesus on the cross. It has to be that dead. Not a little bit dead, all dead. Completely dead. Because that was what was nailed to the cross. So then what's new? It's the new relationship. New behaviors for the believer. New life. All things become new. How many things? All. All new. And it's this work that God does. Being reconciled, we become the ambassadors. And Paul goes on, and as he finishes this section, he says, look it, all things are new, and now I am an ambassador of the new. It's my role to be an ambassador, the spokesperson to be, bring reconciliation. And so he says to them, "Be reconciled. That's an admonition. Be reconciled to God. He wants them to. It, it, you think about it, it's a banking term. I know that people don't balance their checkbook many days these days, right? But you think about it, there used to be a time when you'd have like you know you'd have your checkbook and you'd write these things called checks and you'd put them in there. Some of you might still do that. I know my kids don't do that. They use a the debit card. It's like, how much do you have in your account? I don't know. Let me, let me look it up on my phone real quick and I'll tell you how much I can spend. Drives me crazy. How do you know if it's accurate? I don't know. But you get your bank statement. You've got to reconcile the two together. Well, he says, look at Reconcile yourself to God. Now, a bank may get things wrong, but God never gets things wrong. So what does he do? He's take your life... And all the, all the deposits, withdrawals, and everything you've been doing in your life, and line it up against God, and let's see how you do. And if you're out of balance, what should you do? Get reconciled through confession repentance. Be reconciled. Be reconciled unto Christ in this. How does that work? How did God reconcile sin, which is another question that sometimes people would ask within this. It's in 21. He made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul explains this reconciliation this this way. God made him sin. We who are sinners became the righteousness. It was a switch. Jesus did not know sin. But Jesus became the curse of sin. Jesus never sinned. Never, ever sinned. But he became the curse of sin so that we might become the righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. But he became that curse. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death. So that the sinner who has lived a sinful life could receive God's righteousness undeservedly. That's love. That's how God reconciled. He took the debt of our sin, put it on Jesus, cursed Him, and took the righteousness that still existed and put us into Christ. And now we're covered because we are in Christ. His righteousness. So when He sees us, He sees us in Christ perfect and righteous right now within that. But the one who lives this sinful life is separated from God and still has to stand judgment for that sin. Because it wasn't put on his account. Paul's going to work on commending more of the ministry next week. But I want you to think about tonight. The love of God. And what does the love of God do for you? What has the love of God done for you? How does the love of God compel you to share such a great message, a message of love? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given to us such a great message of hope, that we have a resurrection hope that leads us on. Lord, we know that we are people in process, at least in this flesh, mortifying and putting to death this flesh so that we can realize the eternal life that we already have. The more this flesh dies, the more realization of reconciliation that we have. The more we come to you, the more we shed the old self. Yet, Lord, there's a work in progress that needs to take place. As we close tonight and with this last song, maybe picture yourself before the Bema Seat of Christ. Maybe having that conversation and confess those sins, confess that unrighteousness, and ask God to purify you. Let's all stay. for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387.
1: And don't forget to like us on Facebook.